Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Conversation. I'm your host, Tebelo Mutswane. I'm an attorney by profession and the founder of a platform called Sister in Law, which is a platform dedicated to empowering women through legal education. On today's show, I have with me Tando Gumede. Tando obtained her LLB degree from the University of Witwatersrand. During her tenure as an undergraduate student, she was recognized by Bain & Company as Mbogoto, one of the top all-round performing young women in the entire Gauteng province. In 2015, she became an alumnus for, Master, for Massachusetts Institute of Technology Global Startup Labs, in which she led her team to win first place for demo of a digital educational platform called SkyClass, which provides children from indigent, indigent communities with equal access to the same quality of digital educational content as those children living in privileged communities. Later in the same year, she was recognized by Barclays Africa as one of the top 100 brightest young minds on the entire African continent. She created and anchored the Bashumi Street Law Show and Bashumi Business Show, which aired on Africa Business Radio and garnered 70,000 downloads in the first few weeks. The Bashumi Shows used unique methods to teach law and business skills to women across Africa, as well as to bring equality and dignity for women across the continent. She is currently studying for her master's at the University of Cape Town, specializing in human rights, law, and social justice, with a focused qualification on women, children, and gender non-conforming people's rights to access to basic and higher education. She previously served as a judge's research clerk at the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein, a legal researcher for the democratic governance rights and rights in Cape Town, as well as a legal researcher and contributor for the Judicial Service Commission Judges Appointment Report. Wow, Tando, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Devela, for that introduction. Um, um, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> I'm very happy to have you here. I, I, really, I really just want to obviously stop your bio there. You know you have a long rap sheet, and I would really really like us to hear the story from the horse's mouth. If I read your whole bio, then it's going to be my show, and that's not what today is about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So I, yeah. I, I really just, you know, I really just love starting from the beginning, and I know, you know, your bio will unfold as you tell us the story of who okay. is Tando, where were you born, how many siblings do you have, um, where did you go to school, and why did you decide to pursue such a remarkable and colorful journey in, in the legal profession. Wow, that's a lot. Wow. Uh, you're getting deep. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was born um, in Soweto and um, then grew up in a very small suburb in the south of Johannesburg called Mayfield Park. And if you blink your eyes, you might miss it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, okay. And um, I went to Nigeria Primary School as well as Manjo High School, mm. and really my my blossoming into becoming who I am today started when I went to Manjo High School. Mm. So the first thing is that um, uh, I really got into innovation and, and innovative sciences, and I was also into public speaking and debating. And often when I wrote my speeches. Mm. Um, I really used to make an assessment of the human condition, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, the good and the bad of, of human beings. And it kind of made me research, you know, a number of aspects of our history. 
And I think that's why, to a large extent, I'm so interested in, you know, social justice and equity-related issues. But more than that, I think, you know, from my bio, <clears throat> one person might think that I'm nearly in the legal profession, but um, a lot of who I am is actually... Um, not so much in the legal profession. Mm. I've kind of taken different fields of software engineering mm. and ICT, and I've amalgamated it with law. Mm. And this fascination with technology and innovation started uh, when I was in Mondo and I entered the ESCOM Expo for Young Scientists. Mm. And I remember the first project that I did was a project on sonic vibrations and alternative forms of energy. And I didn't win anything, although my photo was really beautiful. Mm. <laughs> I remember it was like... If you may say so yourself. And it had... If I may so, it was beautiful. Well, okay. <laughs> but, um, so I didn't win that year, but I was so fascinated to see young people of all skin colors, mind you, mm. um, creating things that were changing the, the society that they were living in. Mm. So people that were creating... Um, different types of devices that would help to carry water mm. in places where water and sanitation wasn't accessible in the immediate environment. So what I realized is that you could actually use innovative thinking to solve problems, mm. to solve critical social problems. And so from there, I then started um, kind of taking my understanding of society and its needs to try and solve problems in an, in, in an innovative manner. And I mean, the rest is history. I've won national awards, I won the Denial Aviation Prize, a number of um, medals at regional and national level. I've gone to TV to go and present different ideas. When I was, um, for instance, in matric, I came up with, you know, a soap, a hard bar soap that would both be, you know, good for women's skin as well as their vaginal ecology because a lot of the soap that women use on a daily basis cause infertility as well as the growth of very harmful bacteria. Mm, mm. And that was really the beginning of me becoming um, not just someone who's interested in social justice, but also began zooming in on my feminism and um, and my interest in a, a very particular groups of people, the most vulnerable groups of people. Incredible. Mm. So I did not want to actually go to law school. I'm sure you can gather from everything that I've said that in as much as I was very much interested in social justice issues, I wasn't, um, wasn't going to go to, to law school. Actually, mm. I was being groomed to be a professional athlete. Mm. I already had three provincial colors by the time I was 14 years old, being one of the youngest competing in you know, national championships. Sure. And um, I was going to be a professional athlete in badminton. And I was going to be, obviously, because you can't be an athlete forever. So mm. you have to have another profession that you mm. pursue. Mm. So I was going to be an engineer. I wanted to become an engineer, specializing in some kind of a biological engineer, so maybe like a, a biomedical engineer, of mm. course. Mm. So I had really groomed myself and, and structured all of my life to become an engineer as well as to become a professional athlete. But um, now here we are. <laughs> yeah, but now here we are. So, mm. so what happened in in the trick is that I had a very unfortunate um, family incident, and it kind of threw me off of that axis. Mm. And um, I was struggling with school, so I went from being one of the top students in my school to being um, 
not even featuring on the academic list anymore. I was failing maths, failing science, and you know everything that I kind of built towards had had really started crumbling. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, because of my entire personality, I picked myself up. You know, started asking people for assistance. I arranged um, to to go to school earlier to get into to have the teachers key so I can go to class during breaks and to work. I organized study groups at school and at home and I passed. Mm. But, um, you know, my father really wanted me to study law. I, I didn't want to. And I was like, oh, not only do I not want to study law, I definitely don't want to go to vet. I mean, vet, I mean the, the architecture is just so old and so boring. Yeah, yeah. I want to go somewhere else, exciting, you know. So anyway, I ended up going to vet. And <laughs> fortunately for me, I got uh, the NS first funding. And uh, that's how I got to law school. And as I went to law school, I really kind of started enjoying, you know, law and, and, and the thinking. And I wouldn't be who I am today if it were not for, you know, the very um, complex environment of this university being an environment that was oppressive, but also the, the students constantly shifting for transformation. Yes, yes. As well as being in a field um, that was so multi-dimensional, mm-hmm. you know, in its view. And I'll say that subjects like constitutional law really started to frame my way of thinking mm-hmm. and understanding who and what I wanted to be in society beyond just occupying a profession. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I actually want to make a change mm-hmm. and I want to transform the status quo. So that's, that's really the beginning of the story, and there's a lot more to unpack, but I'll let you be the one to navigate the discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, there's obviously so much to discuss because, um, I, you know, I just want to touch on uh, the work you've been doing in recent times with Black Lives Matter. And obviously yeah. I've been seeing that you've trying to obviously bring it into a more South African context and uh, I just want us to go into your activism around that a little bit and then the conversation you know will naturally progress to uh, the work that you did with school-related gender-based violence as well. Mm. Let me start by saying firstly that um, when it comes to, you know, to, to politics and, and just social issues, you know, having gone to Monjo High School, which was like a former Model C school where my teachers were predominantly white, mm. and, you know, the students were kind of multiracial, mm. but mostly, you know, black and colored. You know, I, I didn't find in that environment a need to be an activist mm. because, to, to be very honest with you, you know, my white teachers did a lot in terms of encouraging me and pushing mm. me. I, I had teachers who literally were driving me from school to home or from home to wherever I needed to be. Just enabling Sometimes, you to be the best version of yourself, basically. Exactly. They, they really encouraged me from, from these people, from these white people, you know. And, and I need to underscore that these were white people mm. who called me a superstar, who told me how beautiful I was, mm. who told me how amazing I was and, and, and the potential of the things that I could achieve. But now, of course, we know South Africa's history, right? Mm. And, and on top of that, I then went to a university where most of the students were white. Mm. Their sentiments were quite racist, mm. you know, liberal, but, but, you know, 
ultimately racist. racist. Mm-hmm. And I also I also was in an environment now where people were very overtly segregated in terms of their race. So you had white people hanging out on their own, mm-hmm. you had Indian people hanging out on their own, you had uh, the colored students hanging out on their own and the black students, and you'll find small groups of people that were multiracial. Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, remember that I came from an environment where as a, as a girl, as a young black girl, whatever effort I put into something, I would see. No one would, no one would hold me back from that. Mm. No one would hold me back from getting my colors in badminton because I was the best. Facts, you know. But now I went to a university institution where I was being held back because I was black. I was being held back because I was a woman. And I was even being held back because of, because of the fact that I was a woman by people who had who shared my skin tone. Mm, mm. So I entered into the South African um, Student Congress organization, um, that's ISASCO, and I, you know, quickly climbed up into the leadership ranks there, becoming the gender officer, um, so one of the branch executive committee members. Mm. And I also led the SRC, um, you know, PYA elections very successfully. And, um, but in that space, it was a very toxic space because I found myself, you know, having to constantly explain my views because I was a woman, a black woman, and I was not allowed to have views, you know. They just saw this, this PYT, so to speak, mm. that um, just had to shut up and go with things. And remember, I'd been taught to be outspoken. Exactly. I'd been taught mm. to say mm. what my views were. I'd been a trained public speaker from the age of 10. And so now to go into an environment where, you, you know... You have to shrink yourself. Were, exactly. Mm. Where, where people had to... Where, um, how, how can I say this? I had to, you know, explain what my positioning was and where I had to sleep my way to the top. You know, we, we knew about women who, who, who had to do sexual favors mm. with their comrades so that they could sort of um, climb up the ladder mm. or who were being sexually abused. You know, I had uh, men who were making sexual advances, and when I said no, they then come up with rumors that I had, you know, slept with them, mm. you know, all of those things. Sure. So that was really the beginning of me becoming a feminist. Mm. For me, feminism was not, was a dirty word, okay? Mm. I, I, I didn't align with it. I thought, you know, look at these people who hate men, and having men so involved mm. in my life, having been brought up with mm. male mm. siblings, mm. being the only female at home. You know, for me, feminism and what I understood, the, the archaic and, and, and man-washed, so to speak, ideology of, um, of, of, feminism. of feminism. And I don't think you were the only one who thought that or who, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are still many, many people who think that or rather have been taught that feminism means hating men. I, mm. I was definitely a picnic of sorts, mm. you know, mm. <laughs> the hippie, that sort of heteronormative patriarchal thinking. Mm. And people started, they, people started calling me a feminist before I called myself a feminist. And I was like, you know what, if, if me being feminist is about having the ability to speak out about mm. things, if me being a feminist means that I can be on the same level as other human beings in a space, and so be as a feminist. Mm, mm. And that's when I really started uh, taking ownership of that. But I think in the years, you know, in, in, in the years of me, between about 2012 to, uh, you know, about 2016, 
I really struggled with what my feminism meant to me and letting go of certain, you know, behaviors mm. that were toxic within me, you know. Mm. So I've been a struggling feminist in my formative years. But um, once I realized what feminism meant in Africa, what feminism meant for blackness, what feminism meant for the black liberation, I really mm. took full ownership of that. Mm. And, you know, come in, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, come in gender-based violence and, and all of these mm. intertwined struggles. And, and that's really kind of molded and shaped where I am now. So just to speak to your question around, you know, Black Lives Matter. So, so unfortunately, I cannot separate my blackness from my womanhood. Yeah. You know, sure. in the same way that, I, that someone could not separate their queerness mm. from their womanhood and their blackness. Mm. And so when I enter into a space, I come as one. I come as all of these things. I carry all of these bags on my shoulder. Mm. Bag and, lady. You know, I, exactly. And I think historically, you know, black women have had to choose between, you know, the feminist movement mm. or the anti-white, the anti-white supremacy movement. Mm. And it's unfortunate because if you look at literature, you'll find that, you know, the feminist movement in South Africa is old. It's, it's, over, a, it's over a century years old. People think that feminism is a new thing that came with mm. globalization. Mm. It's very old in South Africa. So women, especially black women, realize that they need to liberate themselves, even at the hands of people of their same race, you know. Um, black women were not allowed, of course, in, in the first kind of feminist movement in South Africa because that was being led by white women and those women were racist. And so yeah, yeah. that was then the beginning of black feminism and the intersectional movement as we know it in contemporary times that was open to everyone, whether you're gay, whether you're lesbian, it doesn't matter. You come as you are into mm, the space. Mm, mm, mm. And unfortunately, during the 1960s and 1970s when civil rights, you know, globally, I think, and, and, and in South Africa was really keeping up, um, black women had to forfeit and surrender, you know, their feminist struggle to the For black liberation movement. Yeah. Yeah. Because they unfortunately believed that um, apartheid was responsible for their oppression as women. And so if they just mm. focused, if they forgot about feminism and focused on black liberation movement, then, you know, at the turn of, of, the, of, this, of the century when we get our democracy, then ultimately black women especially would be liberated from the clutches of patriarchy and misogyny. Mm. And I think what you've realized, you know, as you observe the unfolding of the scourge of gender-based violence, and, and when I say gender-based violence, I mean I'm talking about um, unequal pain. I'm talking about the criminalization of sex work. Mm. I'm talking about unpaid care work. I'm talking about pericide and queerphobia. You know, all of mm, these things. Mm, mm. We thought that all of these things would go away, but they didn't go away because the truth is that the real crisis that we have in our society is, is something called white heteropatriarchy. And for so long, we've kind of not called it that. We called it racism. We didn't call it white heteropatriarchy because calling it white heteropatriarchy means that white allies had to look at themselves. The white liberals that we hang out with had to, had to take a mirror and look at themselves. It means that men, 
you know, who were fighting with, you know, also would have to have a look at themselves and would have would also have to have a look at their, their heteronormativity, mm. you know. So it's such a contentious word. I, I had a meeting, a dialogue um, on Sunday evening with the, inter- the International Black Lives Matter mm. movement. Mm. And I said this, I said that the real crisis that we're having in our society is white heteropatriarchy. And so we're going to continue to have these these kind of um, uh, pop-ups of movements across the world because we're not calling the demon by its name yeah. and we're not uprooting it, you know, from the ground up. And these guys turned white. I mean, they couldn't handle the fact that I just called them out because now they, because it's easy to hide behind the word uh, because you don't uh, have to confront the word But white when you break it down, white, yes, yes. Yes, exactly. Sure. So... They don't have to look at themselves by using the word racism. And they also hide behind the word capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, oh, well, racism was fueled by capitalism. And if you dismantle capitalism, you'll also dismantle. I don't believe. I don't believe. I do know that, you know, dismantling, you know, the economy, the, the economic engine that runs patriarchy and whiteness, you know, it, it can it can have a great effect. But I don't think that you know, the hatred, the overt hatred um, of human beings based on their skin color and their features, etc., is as a result of capitalism. Mm, you know, mm. It's as a result of primarily religion that taught white people to believe that they were gods, mm. that they were closer to godliness and holiness to any other race, and that they were the chosen ones to look after the barbaric blacks, you know, so that is that is kind of um, where I'm at. So yeah. I'm I'm currently trying to say, if we divide the Black Lives Matter movement into um, Black Men's Lives Matter, then we are going to find ourselves in the same position that we are in now in about a hundred years' time, and we'll call it something else. We'll call it um, the, the Purple Flag Movement mm. because of something that happened that revolved around the color purple, mm, mm. you know. And so it's important for us as black people to look within ourselves and to call out our normativity, our misogyny, and our whiteness within the black community, mm, mm. you know. I mean, if we look, for instance, at music videos, let's look at entertainment, you know, let's, let's generalize this discussion. If you look at our music videos that's made for black entertainment, we no longer see black women anymore. We gradually went from, you know, diverse black women mm. to having only light-skinned black women, to having light-skinned black women with, with um, you know, you can see that this person has had surgery to change mm. their future, mm. to now not even having black women, now, black, now light-skinned black women aren't good enough, now it's light-skinned colored women and, and white women who are in who are in home music videos and house tracks and quieto music. You know, it's, it's, it's really such a, a bizarre phenomenon, but it's a very real thing, colorism and whiteness within the black community. Sure. You know, the murder of Collins Cause by a black soldier mm-hmm. shows mm-hmm. us that we don't need white people to be in a particular space mm-hmm. in order for us to perpetuate perpetuate whiteness in our own communities, you know. 
a, a white woman can get away with calling a black person the K-word and can fight police officers during the pandemic, can physically fight them, and they don't do anything. But we can hyper-police and hyper-militarize black communities and even gun down black bodies in, in their own homes, you know, yeah. when they, where they are not a threat. So I think we've got a lot of, a lot of work to do. And oh, if, that if just white gave people... Me. Mm. I mean, if black people continue to to um, oppress black women, oppress queer bodies, you know, oppress a migrant blacks, I mean, mm. would stomp to death a migrant woman, an immigrant woman, a, a foreign national in our country, a black foreign national, because she's black, and 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 we find that you know we we find ourselves being insulted by the the presence of another uh, African person in our country when we've had people who are foreigners in our country for hundreds of years Yo. who live amongst us and call us derogatory names, mm, who, mm. who police our blackness in, in, in the legal profession, you know, our hair is untidy for them, our skin is too dark and dirty for them, our lips are too black for them, you know. So these are all things that we as black people have to confront about ourselves. Mm. And we have to learn to accept ourselves before we can ask for whiteness to affirm ourselves. No, 100%. Sure, that just that just gave me chills down my spine. But at the same time, it was so educational, you know. Um, I mean, even for me, I'm, I'm, I'm here just trying to fight what I see with my naked eye, but I'm not dismantling it to to you know the 1800s like you have for us i'm not dismantling it to a, a century ago unless i actually have to then go into aspects of slavery so thank you so much for that very very educational um few minutes but now i'm going to move on to the second part of your bio which i think will direct the conversation nicely um yo all 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 i saw in the second part of your bio was awards on awards so let me just read <laughs> let me just read that and then it will give us a nice direction into where we're going next. So it says in twenty in twenty eighteen, Tando became the recipient of the Hague Institute for Innovation in Laws Fellowship Award, as well as Justice Challenge Grant from Netherlands. In early 2019, she received the Leaders in Innovation Residential Fellowship Award from the United Kingdom's Royal Academy of Engineering and the South African Technology Innovation Agency. Later in 2019, she received the Litsema Social Innovation and Impact Award. She has won these awards for, in, for her innovation called MTETO, Search Engine, which is a mobile technology application focused on addressing the current challenges related to school-related gender-based violence and minimizing the consequences thereof. MTETO Search Engine is an educational tool for children in all matters related to school-related gender-based violence while also improving access to resources and institutions and increasing the accountability of those same institutions. Sure, that is the best innovation I've heard of in a while. And not only is it the best, but it's so relevant right now. Can you just tell us a bit about how you... For me, it looks like you've merged, you know... Um, your your childhood dream of becoming a software engineer with law. So I, I don't know you you walked away with with both worlds having having one you know both both aspects of your dreams. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your application? Yes, I'm I'm so glad that you called that out. It's 
true. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm running, I've started an engineering company um, without an engineering qualification. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look how everything just works out for the good at the end of the day. Look at God, right? Yo. Look at God. Yeah, I know. Incredible. I think, I think the universe knew that, you know what, Sandra, I have to force you to love because if I don't force you there, uh, you're not going to go there. You, mm. You'll find your engineering there mm. in the front. Um, so this is what happened to them. So this is incredible. I, I needed to find a purpose beyond just having a professional qualification. You mm. know? And I think a lot of us lawyers are very well primed in terms of the knowledge that we have mm. to do that. And a lot of us don't, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I, I found myself being a university student um, wanting to, to, to have significance in myself beyond just maybe going to become a corporate lawyer and a corporate, yeah, a corporate dog, yeah. you know what I mean? And so, but while this was also happening, I was trying to adapt to the new world order. And I realized that you know, a lot of the projects that I did before were so intense. Mm. Let me try entering into a space where, um, the requirements for me to, to build something and create something are lower and less costly. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually when I started having an interest in technology. Um, and then what happened is that in 2015, I came across a post from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. And it was for a program called the Global Startup Lab, and they were looking for, uh, for leaders, and they were looking for people who had an interest in technology. And that was really the beginning of my foot in the door of the tech space because mm-hmm. I was then trained for about a month and um, when I started the program I was the only woman in the group I was the youngest and I had to lead a team of all men grown you know who mm-hmm. clearly were undermining me but by the end of the program at demo day uh, my team won under my leadership and so that was really the beginning of technology for me but also the idea that we came up with was for um, was a digital educational platform that would make digital educational content available, um, equally available, and the same quality available for poorer communities. Mm. So you can see that that was the beginning of me um, starting to see technology as a way of conquering social justice issues, right? Um, of course, that project um, didn't continue beyond that because uh, just for purposes of capacity, but mm-hmm. I then started training myself. I started reading a lot more. And at this time, I was also a postgraduate student, and I, I became, you know, involved in understanding to a, a larger extent issues around social justice. And um, what happened is that there was a student who was raped at, at, at a residence of mine. I remember that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I called an emergency meeting to discuss how we can go about dealing with this issue. And, um, you know, that's when I found out that at Wits University there was a backlog of about 400 cases in that year alone of students that had been allegedly raped and cases that hadn't been dealt with. And then uh, shortly after that, I went to a conference a women's conference, a women's leadership conference representing Wits University. Mm. And I found there um, through women's testimonials that there were black women, especially in the Natal region, who were being murdered as well as forcefully removed from land because they did not have the right to own land. And this 
infuriated me beyond words. And I felt myself, you know, when you are so angry that you begin to vibrate mm. from the inside, you know. And what I did there is I found mentorship from some from some women, one of them being Wendy Lucas Ball, who's the chairperson of EXA. And um, I then started to forge my own way. I realized that I had made a mistake in my previous endeavors mm. in relying on other people mm, mm. to help me begin things. And I yeah, said, you know, sure. I'm going to take ownership and leadership of this. I am going to do something that's going to take legal knowledge to people so that it can empower them with a main aim of empowering the most vulnerable being black women, black African women. Mm. So then I conceived something called the Bashumi Street Law Show, which is an internet-based, obviously, platform. Yeah. And so it's also considered a, a technology-based thing. And um, there I was teaching mainly the law of succession, you know, and the law of interstate succession, yeah. teaching women how to, like, how the assets are supposed to be split, about adopted children and nat- children of natural birth and et cetera, et cetera. And that skyrocketed to be the second highest watch platform. And fortunately, you know, I had to move from Johannesburg to Cape Town. Yeah, yeah. And there I then tried to get the platform revived. And unfortunately, once it was approved in a new format, I then had to go clerk at the judiciary. But what happened during this period is that I entered into a competition and I, I was, you know, if remember I told you that in 2015 I, I had done the message, the, the MIT startup lab and one day, yes, yes. and I was introduced to a concept called artificial intelligence. And I was like, what is artificial intelligence? And I started reading up mm, about mm. it. So I spent all of these years reading about something, but I wasn't sure, you know, what I was going to do with it. But I was agitating because of this problem that I was faced with of especially women you know, just being being so vulnerable in our society um, in, in, in 2016, you know. Sure. So I then, I entered this competition. Uh, it was called the Heal um, Justice Innovation Challenge. Yes, yes, I'm familiar with that. Yes. So I entered with a massive idea, huge. Mm. And then I tried scaling it down, you know, over the years. And I remember that I made it as a semi-finalist. And the, literally, the day after I had made it um, was the day after our, we had a fire in our apartment. Oh, no. So we didn't really have mm. a place to stay with electricity and stuff like mm. that. But I navigated myself through this very harsh period, you know, of not having a place really to stay in Cape Town at the time mm. and, and, and putting my all, you know, all of my efforts in making sure that this thing so anyway, I found myself becoming a regional finalist and I presented um, literally the day after my birthday. So it was quite a nice gift. Mm-hmm. And um, I then got special recognition and I also won the fellowship, the global fellowship. And that's where MTETO was born. So MTETO was born out of the need to... So I re- what I realized is that um, it's teaching older people about the law and mm-hmm. teaching them about this. I let me focus on kids, man, because kids' minds are still malleable. Yes. You, you can still kind of get to them, you know. And obviously, I was doing more and more research at the time, and I, and I realized that in order to break gender stereotypes and break, uh, sorry, perceptions and norms, you have to get children at a young age. 
and you also have to it has to be a school based intervention you know so as i started learning more and more about how to dismantle you know patriarchy gender norms and and all of these toxic perspectives toxic masculinity toxic femininity it was important to reach out to children incredible so yeah that's my favorite I, part about this whole thing actually yeah. like incredible mm. yes yes so so while i'm still happy to teach you know women about their rights and mm. stuff like that i really want to I've, i've taken a step of investing all of me into children because mm. i really i don't even think children are the future i think children are the now yeah you know yeah so um you know mtetto is is a is a search engine just like how google is a search engine mm, mm. so people mustn't think it's a repository you know how people like to undermine people's efforts and be like it's a repository and i'm like no it's not a repository it's a search engine <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so it's a search engine just like google but it has been tailored for children it's, it's made for children it's palatable to children and all of the content in there is made to dismantle um patriarchal misogynistic stereotypes like basically white heteropatriarchy um is is challenged in that platform through information through education so um you know I, 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 the the medium that is available is from text to videos to audio mm. and you would search for it as you would anything else But more than that, I think what's really great about the platform is that um, a person is able to find emergency services. So you can find, for instance, an abortion service provider um, because the reality is that 20% of our school children are experiencing school-related gender-based violence. No, That's about one in five children. Oh. 10% of our girls are raped while they're at school. And so um, things like abortion service providers, contraceptives, are really important information mm. for for especially young girls to mm. access. I remember mm. uh, we in, there was a public interest law gathering that took place in 2014 and first where a representative from the Teddy Bay Clinic came to tell us that you know, young girls as young as 12 were coming to clinics to ask for contraceptives and being turned away by <clears throat> health care providers yeah. and nurses. Yeah. And to be like, why are you having sex at yeah. such a young age? Yeah. Only to find that that girl was actually being raped by her father and she just wanted a means of preventing, you know, Uh, falling pregnant from from being raped by her father. Oh, like you said, and, even by you know her teacher. So yes, and yeah. by by teachers. I understand, of course, that Intego Search Engine is focused on the schooling environment. But the fact is that the knowledge, you know, can be mm. you know pollinated, you know, outside of the school. So you know, using the school as a focal point yeah. of of information of empowerment. Um, with an understanding that these people are going to grow up to be sustainable human beings mm-hmm. who are groomed with with ideas and ideology around equity, which is really what our constitution is. It's, an, it's, an, it's a document. It's actually a very feminist document, and yeah, yeah. I can see I'm <laughs> happy to debate that with anyone. It's a feminist document that is geared towards bringing about equity for all human beings. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, so, and we also have. Um, a policing uh a police um functionality so uh you can check for instance the nearest police station and you can be able to see how many rape kits are there so there's live data being shared mm-hmm. so if there's two rape kits for example um at the Monjo police station 
then I know that by the time I get there, I probably won't have access. So I'd rather go to the boys and police station where I know that there's 12 rape kits there. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, rape kits are used for um, gathering DNA yeah. and other forensic evidence mm-hmm. that is used mm-hmm. for the conviction of perpetrators of sexual violence, especially. And so having that closing off that time of a person getting access to rape kits, I think it's very important. But more than that, what we do is that we provide information on the services, the service provider, uh, service providers themselves. So, for instance, if uh, if Boysen's police station is reputable for secondary victimization, then I, I won't go there to avoid mm, traumatization. Mm, mm. I'll go to Monjo police station. You know, so it's it's um I'll be more than happy to every day we demonstrate what we're all about. But I think the most the most important aspect of the search engine is the data that we gather. Yeah. Because the data is used for um, organizations that help to protect children and their rights, you know. So government institutions as well as non-governmental institutions responsible for protecting children now have got access to this data that was previously unknown. You know, we ask children information. Do they know what GBV is? Do they know... Um, uh, have they seen it or has, has it been perpetrated against them? Do they believe that they've perpetrated it against someone else? There's so much information, um, obviously very anonymous information and de-identified. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of information that we gather that can really improve the types of information, uh, sorry, interventions and programs that we initiate on the ground. Because right now, a lot of these institutions are implementing interventions and programs blindfolded. They don't even know how many children are being raped there. They don't even know what kind of sexual assault they're experiencing there. They don't know what kind of consequences are problematic. Is, is, is abortion perhaps problematic? Is HIV perhaps problematic? And, uh, and to then take it from, from that standpoint. So a lot of the interventions that you see today are around and are not making the impact. You know, gender-based violence mm. keeps increasing in our society because there's no data and there's no information that can tell us about the nature of the beast and how it should be slaughtered. Yo, like, Tando, my heart is beating so fast because mm. I, I don't understand how... I don't even know if you know that this um, Teto search engine is even bigger than you. Do, do you understand that it's... <laughs> Bigger than you, like <laughs> it's way bigger than me, and I think <sighs> that's 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 why it's been you know it's been a tough journey. I mean, it's mm. been a tough three years. To be very honest, we were supposed to start piloting um, in April of this year, um, but because of the um, the pandemic, literally <sighs> as everything was secured mm. for piloting, um, we had to shut everything down. And, and I'm kind of trying to figure out how we can continue piloting with this new norm, you know, while I'm also trying to dodge classes, you know, (laughs) because I'm a pupil, you know. So it's a lot, but um, it is much bigger than me. But I think what's important is understanding that it was never about me to begin with. Mm. When When you understand that, then you get over the bigness, you know. So understanding the fact that MTS is supposed to create jobs for legal minds and, and engineers, mm. especially black women engineers, software engineers, <laughs> and legal minds and researchers and academics who wouldn't ordinarily have had the opportunity to penetrate spaces yeah. because of, of the, the injustice that there is 
in in the formal economy and and in the workforce today for black women especially. Mm-hmm. So when I understand that that's that's what I'm doing this for, I'm doing it for the kids themselves and who they're going to become in 20 years from now. And I'm also doing it for the people who are going to join this journey as the workforce to make this thing a sustainable thing even when I'm gone, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, the 100%. thing that carries me forward. Yeah. And understanding that it's not about me, it's about us, is, is really the thing that keeps me going. Mm-hmm. Sure, incredible. Thank you so much for sharing, Tando. So in the interest of time, I'm going to start, you know, getting to a point where we need to wrap up the conversation. I'm going to read the balance of your bio because I I think it's important for people to know this about you. I would really be doing this whole, you know, conversation a disservice if I didn't actually boast just how colorful and how, you know, incredible you are and the scope and extent of the work that you're doing for justice and for innovation and for technology so let me read the rest of your bio then i just want you to share with us you know some of your closing thoughts um it can it it can do with you know anything that's in your bio or just something that you really think that if one person hears it it will it will change their whole mindset on life so let me just read the balance of that um Tanda is an advocate pupil serving her practical vocational training as part of the first cohort of pupils at the Pius Langa School of Advocacy of the Pan-African Bar Association of South Africa. This is the first pro-black and equitable bar association and school on the continent. Further, as a fellow of the African School of Internet Governance, she advocates against the use of digital currencies and the internet for human trafficking. To further her advocacy, she has previously represented South Africa as a delegate at the AFRI-SIG's seventh School of Internet Governance in Njema, Chad. Beyond legal practice and academia, she is an innovator who is passionate about merging law, education, public health, software, engineering, and the fourth industrial revolution to conquer gender-based violence in Africa and across the globe. To this end, she has dedicated her life to smashing patriarchy and fighting for equity, not only for South Africa, but across the globe too. She she contributes her knowledge and spirit of radical and intersectional transformation and feminism to a number of spaces, including the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation, where she is a fellow and a leader of the Committee for Ethics and Social Justice, as well as online platforms, where she continues to create and share feminists, and socio-legal content at local governmental and non-governmental and international human rights gatherings and consultations. Yo, Tando, girl, where do you find the time? Like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, but um, it, it works out. But I just want to say that I didn't get to where I am in my life on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very fortunate, number one, to have... Um, people who really encouraged me, who loved me and who believed in me even when I didn't believe in myself. Yeah, yeah. So I remember, you know, being in primary school and being quite an unhappy person, you know, with my life and into high school feeling resentful and not necessarily knowing my direction. I had, you know, a number of opportunities, especially in primary school, taken away from me mm. and not understanding why it was that I was being you know, the street, etc. And so for me, high school was really a place for second chances. And, um, you know, even up till now, I have people who have 
surrounded themselves um, around me. Mm. And I, I'm not too sure as to why, why that is, but I'm so fortunate to have people who have allowed me to stand on their shoulders yeah, or yeah. who have allowed me to hold their hand and to um, walk this journey alongside them. Mm. And um, But I also have to say that the reason why these people are around me is because of the application of a very simple life principle that some people seem to not understand, mm. and that is respect. You know, Respect is probably one of the most fundamental but most misunderstood concept in in human existence. The reason why these people could and were willing to surround themselves around me to give me all of these resources and this knowledge and this mentorship is because I was respectful, inherently respectful and humble. For me, I believe that you treat with Hina with the same amount of respect and grandeur that you treat as CEO and that there is no distinction in how you treat uh, different human beings. And having that understanding of respecting people, respecting your peers, respecting mm-hmm. people younger than you, older than you, people in, in diverse fields and spaces, having that understanding will open so many doors for you. Tando, even, even, say, Tando, even respecting people on the internet, have you seen how many trolls there are who hide behind the fact that you know, we, we we don't know their faces, they don't have a display picture, but they are just so abusive and cruel and mean towards, you know, other people who engage on platforms like that. So I really and they love... they think it's funny. Yeah. They, yeah, they really do yeah. think it's funny. Um, I've, I've once or twice also been subjected to mm. that and I and I kind of delete it. But what, I, what I've realized about those people is that they're broken people. Mm. They're broken people that come from a broken place and so they engage with other people in a broken manner. Yeah, sure. And um, I, I, I quickly erase and remove those people and move along with my life, mm. you know. But but just being an all-round respectful person yeah. is very important. And so being important. humble. Yeah. Yeah. Being humble and always knowing that you don't know it all. And using every opportunity and every space that you enter, even when you enter into a space as an expert, Open your mind to learning and understanding how different people think uh, and, and how different people approach certain things mm. because it only further validates your own positioning and, and your own way of thinking for you to understand the entire spectrum of views and perspectives and thinking and approaches and ideologies. You know? So that's just what, something I wanted to say. And um, just in closing, um, you know, I wanted to... Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity to not only conscientize people, but also to give practical solutions to those um, who are listening about how we can transform society. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would look at yeah. myself as an instrument through which white heteropatriarchy is dismantled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, white heteropatriarchy is a system of intersectional and multiple oppressions and is comprised of unfair discrimination based on the premise of race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, ability, socioeconomic class, in favor of advancing mainly white, male, heteronormative, and elitist interests. Mm. So basically, you know, white heteropatriarchy is a system that meets in the middle and attacks people at different angles, you know. Mm. And my, my responsibility is to dismantle the system. And as I mentioned earlier, I cannot separate the elements of myself yeah. And I come all as one. Yeah. And I really want to um, urge those who are fighting to conquer systems of oppression 
in understanding that actually we are all trying to fight one system of oppression mm. and to not make the bad mistake of being divisive in how we choose to fight these systems yeah. of oppression. Yeah. You know, and um, just from a, a practical a practical move now applying my legal mind, you know, in transformation. I believe that um, you know, we need to split the judiciary in the sense that, you know, criminal crimes as well as um, criminal uh, constitutional law issues mm. should be dealt with in the courtroom and everything else should be dealt with in mediation, you know. Mm. I'm so tired of seeing a courtroom that has um, someone who bumps into someone else's car mm. on the same road sure. someone yeah. who's been raped, yeah. you know, it just hasn't made any sense. Yeah. I also think that we need to, you know, bring in education in law school which aims to teach people about feminism, about our racialized history, about white patriarchy, and about gender-based violence, you know. Mm. I was having a conversation and found that, as I reflected, I was like, oh no, we've never actually learned about gender-based violence and about domestic violence laws Mm. and about racism in Mm. law school. Mm. How Mm. is it that we learned Roman law and Roman history, but we didn't have a subject that unpacks white heteropatriarchy in our society and systematic oppression that exists today. So I think we need to have an, a course in university, in law school, mm. and practice throughout all, Through, all the Yeah, the I was going to say, I was, yeah. was say, actually, across the board, like, it, yes. you know, these these are conversations that need to be had. From even as a younger age, like, you know, like what you're doing with um, Mteto. Yeah. yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I was actually going to get to, to that, you know, teaching equity and, and also, you know, in, in practice as well, you know, as I'm being trained as a student at Tabata, I find, you know, problematic language being used by colleagues as well as the language of the code of conduct, you know, mm. it's very male-centric. Mm. So I would, I, I want to challenge, I might do it, I might not do it, but let's challenge, um, the, the language in the code to stop speaking about him, her, mm-hmm. and being so male. I mean, sorry, not not even her. Sorry, him and Matt, and being so male male centric. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in how we perceive our existence, even calling it a legal fraternity, fraternity means brotherhood. It's yeah. the wrong language to use. Yeah, sure. Um, also, just to touch on what you said, teaching in schools as well. I think there should be a course. And um, I actually just uh, started an online academy called Ubuntu Studies, and I'll be replenishing it on, on a weekly basis where I'm teaching content, um, you know, aimed at dismantling white heteropatriarchy. Mm-hmm. So I've just published something on gender-based violence and on different queer identities um, because it takes very long for things to get into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So if we can, in our own way, do that kind of work ourselves, then let's do it. I, I also think that um, in terms of dealing with intimate partner violence, we need to remove men from the home instead of removing women. Mm-hmm. So we need to remove problematic people from the normal society and put them in shelters instead of the other way yeah, around. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. And then also making bail unavailable for alleged rape, murder, and uh, abuse, abusers. Um, I think that um, we need to have a school for judiciary. So I think that our approach to legal education is incorrect mm. and that people should have a chance to to go to um, judicial training 
right after law school. Mm, so I believe mm, that a mm. person should go to law school and then determine there whether they want to become an attorney, an advocate, or a judge and be trained in accordance with that. Imagine having a 25-year-old who's sitting at the bench um, as a judge, mm, you know. Mm, mm. Um, I, I think that the, the elitism and that whiteness of the judiciary has still remained mm. in the sense that we make becoming a judge be something that is almost impossible to achieve will take 20 years, 10 yeah, to 20 yeah, years yeah. to achieve, which is yeah. unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so these are, these are just a couple of things that um, I think we can do as a matter of, of urgency, you know, yeah. using our influence in the space in terms of transforming um, the, the, the legal industry and, and the legal sector. Sure. You know, and dismantling whiteness and, and patriarchy. Yo, Tando, I honestly cannot thank you enough for this conversation. Like I said to you sure. earlier, it's been very educational, even for myself. You know, somebody who, th- who thought they were woke, <laughs> so they say nowadays. <laughs> but um, I know, I know you and I, I, I know offline that we can chat and chat and chat and chat for hours. Um, you know, but I'm just looking at the time that I have with you now for this specific conversation. It has come to an end, but I really hope that this conversation has been able to open the mind of just one person. I always say it takes one person at a time. And if this conversation has challenged someone else's thinking and has literally forced them off their seat to want to do better, to want to use their voice to educate and to empower others, then I think our work in this specific conversation is, you know, is is really done. Thank you so much for your time. Your, your right. knowledge, sharing your beautiful, okay. colorful journey, which I have no doubt you're only going to do bigger and better. And, you know, like I say, with this specific platform and community, I always, um, the, the aim is to, you know, make each other aware of, of other people who exist in the space where we can bounce ideas off of each other. So I know that, you know, um, myself and every other woman who's been on this platform, who's been interviewed on this platform, we would be willing in a heartbeat to, you know, just bounce ideas with you or even help you, enable you to get to the next phase of your project. So please reach out and, yeah, we're here. Thank you awesome. so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You, you are doing incredible work. Thank you so much and keep it up. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tando. Have a blessed day and a blessed week further. You too, Cece. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>